And over time that I've seen in countries is this kind of division and this kind of pitting each other against um, each other or breaking down people's sense of um, humanity or shared humanity, that's when rule of law gets eroded and then that's where violent conflict can take over. And then those who benefit from it, you know, criminals and others, that's their, their preferred working place. That was Colette Rausch, and you are tuned in to the Peace Frequency. Hey everybody, welcome to the Peace Frequency, a podcast series tapping into the stories of people across the globe who are making peace possible and finding ways to create a world free of violent conflict. I'm your host, Darren Cambridge, and on today's podcast, my colleague Jody Nardi and I sit down with Colette Rausch, who is the Associate Vice President for Global Practice and Innovation at the United States Institute of Peace. For over 20 years, Colette has used her legal expertise to advance human rights and the rule of law in conflict-affected communities. From Libya to Peru, Afghanistan to Myanmar and many other countries around the world, she has been at the forefront of addressing the most serious of crimes, crimes that keep countries embroiled in violence. Colette is coming out with her newest book, Fighting Serious Crimes, Strategies and Tactics for Conflict-Affected States, and we spend some time on the show discussing what she and the other contributors to the book have learned through their many years of experience addressing crimes like terrorism, drug trafficking, human trafficking, corruption, and organized crime. We also take a close look at Colette's personal story, how a young federal prosecutor in Reno, Nevada, going after telemarketers, wound up in Bosnia and began transforming herself into an international peace builder with a growing appreciation for the rule of law. Stay with us. You're in for quite a journey. Colette, thanks for sitting down with us on the Peace Frequency. I've got to be honest with you. You've been at USIP for many years. I've been here for three and a half, and you are one person that I just feel like we've never had the opportunity to like sit down and actually get to know each other. So the fact mm-hmm. that we have this concerted time right now to sit down and hear your story is just a real honor. And um, so thanks for just joining us on the show. We first want to congratulate you on your upcoming book called Fighting Serious Crimes, Strategies and Tactics for Conflict-Affected States. And we're going to spend a decent amount of time talking about the details of the book, but we begin all of our shows with a behind-the-bio question. And this is a question that in your response is going to reveal something about your inspirations, your motivations, your character, and something about you that doesn't pop up in a bio of you online. So we were doing some research about you to prepare for this episode, and we learned that you are quite the gardener. And so our question is, if you were a plant, uh, what would your label say about you? So folks who go and buy plants at like their Home Depot or garden store, they know that when you go and you see it on the shelf, there's a little thing that's like staked in the soil, and it gives you a little bit of information about the plant. Does it need full sun or partial sun? Does it need a lot of water or a little water? Does it flower? Does it fruit? All those kinds of things, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. 
So the question is, um, if you were a plant, what would the label say about you? Okay, that's a hard one because I like all sorts of vegetables um, and flowers, but I would pick a sunflower. And a sunflower, because it's an amazing um, plant that no matter what the light conditions, it will move its head towards a light. Even if it's completely dark, there could be just a little sliver of light in the sky and it'll move towards that. And then also yellow is a very optimistic color. So I, I think sunflower would be my favorite. Do you grow sunflowers yourself in your garden? I do. Small little sunflowers. Okay. Because I've got to say sunflower, when I see them, we have some neighbors that grow some sunflowers and it almost doesn't look real with the really, really large ones. I mean, the flower itself is just massive. Exactly. And then they got these stalks. I'm like, how are these still standing? It just doesn't seem like physics, you know, works in its favor. But yeah, it's, it's an amazing flower. Yeah. And they're unbelievable. I was in Italy a number of years ago and there was a sunflower field and they were very tall, maybe seven to eight foot uh, sunflowers. And the sun was just going down and it was just hundreds of sunflowers all facing in the same direction, just moving, trying to hold on to that sun at the very last moment. It was just a beautiful sight. That's gorgeous. Wow. It's beautiful. Well, Jody, as our as our co-host, uh, I didn't I didn't tell you this, but I'm going to give you the same question as well. Oh no! Okay. You don't have to go. You don't have to go in tremendous detail. Maybe just say what kind of flower, plant, or tree, or whatever. But just uh, based off of you know Colette's answer, is there a specific flower, plant, or tree, or shrub that? you kind of connect with or identify with? Yeah, actually, I think um, a succulent, a succulent, um, because I'm really drawn to them the way that they look, just uh, different cactuses, cacti, and uh, that they can exist in um, in really dry and desert-like climates, and mostly because um, the succulents that I have don't die very easily, so I can keep them alive, and that's why I would uh, choose the succulent. Nice, nice. Well, thanks to both of you for for that uh, look into your character, your motivations. Um, Jody. So, Colette, you're coming out with this book in June, Fighting Serious Crimes, and you're known in many circles as an international legal expert. But prior to your involvement in law, you had a number of pretty interesting and unique jobs. Uh, could you tell us about some of those? Sure. Oh, wow. As long as I can remember, I couldn't wait to get a job So, because um, that meant freedom to me. It meant that I would be able to make my own money. I could go out and do things. And so my first job was actually babysitting. I was 12 years old. And looking back as a mother now of a 13-year-old, it's hard for me to imagine that people allowed me as a 12-year-old to take care of their, their children and some were infants. But there you have it. Um, I did take a babysitting course on first aid. So it was really my first job. And then also, even well, actually, no, even before that, when I was around eight or nine, um, I used to just find different ways to make money. I, they had these coins called Littleton Coin Company. So I saw that in a magazine and I ordered those and I was trying to sell those and I was selling stamps and I started delivering papers, um, mowing lawns, like anything I could do that I could get people to um, have me do. But then later when I became legally able to work, I worked at McDonald's starting out cleaning the lobbies and then you get promoted into um, French fries. That was really cool. And then the cash register and then the big time, like the big time was to be on the grill, to be the grill chief. And that was the coolest. So I did that and then I became a manager when I was 16. I started at McDonald's when I was 14. They made me manager at 16. 
And then in college to put myself through just a number of odd jobs from, as you mentioned, um, working the night shift at the funeral home, where it was my job to be there when people visited their deceased family members. And then my job was to turn off the lights and set on the alarm to leave. Um, yeah, and then blackjack. That was that was the last job that I had in, in um, while I was going to law school, actually. I was going to law school I was doing it right before law school, and then when I was at law school, I would drive back on the weekends from Santa Clara University and deal blackjack on the weekends and then drive back to law school. So I always figured if I didn't pass my bar, I knew I had a backup because <laughs> I could deal blackjack. And I might have been a waitress too. I was a waitress at Bennigan. So I had a lot of skills if I didn't pass yeah, my bar. definitely. That's really impressive. So a, a couple of follow-up questions on that. You talked about like you really wanted a job and it was like a sense of freedom. Do you remember what you did with like your first paycheck? Um, I, I saved it. And then I usually – the first paycheck was to reinvest into other things. That's where I bought more stamps or more coins. And then after that, I saved it for a car. So my first car was an old beat-up car that barely worked, but my dad was a mechanic. So we dragged it home, and he put it back together. Cool, cool. And then when you, you said you worked at a funeral parlor. Yes. And then, then, so you said people would come, they're grieving with their families. So you just greeted them, or you comforted them, or what, you know, what was your job, your connection with the families or people when they came into the funeral parlor? My job was to be there um, in case there were any questions, if the family needed anything. So I worked in a little office space off to the side. So I held the space open for people. Um, so it was mainly just to answer questions or make sure that everything went smoothly. Oh, was that difficult? It was very difficult. I think initially it was difficult because of the emotion, because you know, you're right next to the the family members going to visit their um, deceased relatives. So it was very difficult. And then later it was difficult just because I was getting actually nervous. There were um, stories of another funeral home in the town that I was in where people were breaking in and actually removing the bodies. And so at that point I was nervous that that would happen at our funeral home. So before closing up at the time, my boyfriend would come, I would have him come. And I had the little alarm and I'd walk around <laughs> until he got there. And after that, I decided, okay, I need another way to make mm. money. And this was in Vegas? Um, that was in Reno. In Reno. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. Thank you for that. Yeah. So following these really interesting experiences, you start out your legal work domestically. And you eventually work your way to becoming a federal prosecutor with the Department of Justice in Las Vegas. So given all of those wild experiences up to that point, what motivated you to go into law of all things? Well, I remember when I um, was about five, my father looked at me and he said, I know you're going to be a lawyer because I was one of five children. And he said I was the only one who would argue all the time if I thought that there was something that was not right or there was something that was not fair. And he said I, when I – he would see me put my hands on my hips and stand my ground even if there were people that were bigger than me. And so at five, he said, you're going to be a lawyer. I just know it. You argue so much. <laughs> so I think it, that, that started. It was kind of in my system about confronting injustices. And the second part really related to I had this really intense fascination with why violence occurs. Um, why does crime occur? 
And in my life at that time, I had witnessed both. And so I was really curious, like, why does that happen? And so I really think that I was curious about the human nature of that. And then moreover, why does it happen, but how can you stop and prevent it? So I think really that was what was underlying, you know, my, my sense of what's fair and justice, and then also how do we prevent violence and crime on the other hand. So um, let's talk about the jump from being a federal prosecutor in Vegas to working as an international peacekeeper. Um, that's quite a career change and a shift. What, um, what inspired you to make that leap? Um, I'd like to say that um, it was all planned out perfectly, that if you look at my resume, it may look like everything is so orderly and that I had scouted this all out, but that just wasn't the case. Um, how I made the leap was... I was sitting in my prosecutor's office, and at that time, Las Vegas was being deluged with uh, telemarketing fraud. Millions and millions of dollars were being taken from elderly victims. Mm-hmm. And, and what year? What, around what year was this? This was roughly about 1995 to about 98, I would say, okay. maybe even 94. And I'd actually started at the attorney general's office where we were going after telemarketers in a civil and regulatory fashion because um, that was my job. And it was actually the U.S. attorney's office at the time um, came to me and said, you know, we were seeing this problem that's overtaking Las Vegas and the United States. Would you come up and be a federal prosecutor to, to do it with us? So that's what I did. But after about three years of that, um, or actually more like four, it was just very intense work. Because there were a lot of trials, you're working with wire fraud, mail fraud, you know, racketeering, money laundering, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of documents, um, many, many, many um, witnesses, and moreover, a lot of the elderly victims. So after a while, I needed a break. And so I was staring at my office, and a friend from DOJ in Washington, D.C. called, and she had been one of my co-prosecutors in one of my cases. And I said, you know, I need to get a different, I need a different um, place. I need something to do for a few months just to get, get a break from Las Vegas. And she said, why don't you call up the DOJ overseas office? She said, I went to Russia for six months on a detail, so maybe you could do that. And so I thought that was really fascinating because I wanted to challenge, but I also um, wanted a break from Las Vegas. And next thing I know, I was in Bosnia. <laughs> And what did they have you doing in Bosnia? Um, I was told at the time um, that I would be working to train their judiciary, judges, prosecutors, as well as um, defense attorneys and judges on their new criminal code and criminal procedure code. It had been revised following the war so that it was consistent with international standards. At the time... There was a little thing in the back of my mind, like, how am I competent to be able to train on somebody else's laws? But, you know, I hadn't really thought through that at the time. And I basically was given maybe two weeks' notice that this is where I was going to go. And so I just kind of packed things up. My office allowed me to go. You know, they seconded me to the Justice Department. And that's where I landed. I showed up at the airport and was picked up. And then that just started a whole wild ride um, and things that I had just didn't predict would happen and change the course of my life through that process. Hmm. So you'd never been to Bosnia before? Never been to Bosnia. And truth be told, um, there was a lot of news at the time. This was 1995, and it's when the horrific um, 
human rights abuses were going on, Srebrenica, everything. So I remember getting ready for my prosecutor job in Las Vegas listening to NPR about it. So I'd heard about it. But as I said, truth be told, I don't think I could specifically tell you where on the map it sat within former Yugoslavia. You know, we just knew, you know, you, you think generally it's in Europe, it's in Yugoslavia. And it was even when I was telling my fellow prosecutors what I was going to do, and most of them are really hardcore prosecutors, they were looking at me like, you're going to do what? Mm-hmm. Are you going to, what's even there? Are, do they even have houses? You know, you could just tell that a lot of people who aren't involved in international work, it's a complete opaque type of um, environment. Yeah. Had you done much international travel prior to that? I had traveled to Germany okay. um, because my um, part of my family is German. So I'd been to Germany. I'd been to Costa Rica as a prosecutor um, working on a case that involved there in Canada. So it wasn't very exotic or different international travel. And was Bosnia in 95 when you went there, was it still an active conflict zone or were there, was there still – some um, violent skirmishes going on or was it pretty much pacified at that point and now it's just a process of trying to rebuild? By the time I was there, it was 1998. Uh, And so I'd been kind of off and on hearing about it in the news from about 95 on. So it was 1998 when I went there. And when I went there, um, it, you know, the active war had stopped. There was still tension. When I was there, there were still um, checkpoints illegal checkpoints between the Serb areas and the um, Federation areas. And so there was tension at the time. And they were still working to rebuild, rebuild the systems, rebuild the communities, um, demining. There were still a lot of mining, you know, mine um, issues that were going on. Mm. So this, you know, job that you were a part of helping to understand the laws, the new laws, was this called a peace building, um, you know, no, what was it? How was it defined? How was it classified? (laughs) It's interesting because, um, I didn't even hear the term peace building or that I recall hearing in any way till I came to the U.S. Institute of Peace. Okay. So it was really defined there as a rule of law mission or, um, post-conflict mission or, you know, later it was stability operations missions. It was really in that context, rule of law, peace operations, stability operations, um, not really peace building, at least in my, in the world in which I was working. Right. Now how, you've been at USIP for how long now? Hmm. Okay. I've been here. I started in, uh, 2001. I accepted the job the day before 9-11, mm. September 10th. And, um, so, and then I left for one year to become a federal public defender. So from 2001 to now, which is about 15 years, minus a year that I went back to become a lawyer okay. and then returned. So you were first, you started using or hearing the word peace building, peace builder when you started in 2001 at USIP, basically. When you yeah. re- reflect back on your time in Bosnia and the work that you were doing, do you consider that? Peace building work? Yeah, absolutely. And what I've noticed over time is the peace building work that I did in the beginning um, was really from the rule of law side, setting up systems that were um, where people could be accountable for their crimes or their missteps. So it was really, to me, the foundation of peace building, that you have good governance, you have a system of justice, security, rule of law. Later, though, what's interesting is a lot of my work expanded 
to be what one might say is more traditional peace building, bringing together groups, dialoguing, working on problems. Um, so I consider both of them part of the peace building toolkit, so to speak. But I've moved or expanded much more from the more technical into the more human um, conflict resolution through the doorway yeah. of justice and security. Yeah. You know, I have some lawyers in my my partner's side of the family, quite a bit of lawyers. And so I've I've come to learn more about their work, but really appreciate the legal profession as conflict prevention. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, I imagine what the world would be like without lawyers. And I know there's a bunch of lawyer jokes, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, people have a disagreement about who's owed what or who did who wrong. And, you know, and if there wasn't, you know, legal practice precedent and folks who understood how to interpret and help people come to some decision, oh my goodness, the amount of yeah. conflict, chaos, violence that would, that would, you know, plague this planet would be even worse. Um, so, you, you said you had some um, other legal colleagues uh, when you were at DOJ and you then went to Bosnia and, and they were kind of looking at you and wondering, why are you why are you doing this? Why are you going to Bosnia? I'm, I'm wondering, do you think the term peace building would resonate with those folks if you were to call that mission a peace building mission? It was like a rule, yes, you're doing rule of law, but it's also a peace building mission. I guess the one I'm trying to get at is we use this term a lot at USIP. And I think a lot of us proudly identify as peace builders doing peace building work, but we also work a lot with other professions like the legal profession or the human, you know, humanitarian agencies or you, know, you name it. Um, how does that term peace building resonate or not resonate with other professions? Yeah, I think if you just say peace building and use a generic term, I don't think that necessarily resonates with people. But to me, it's going through the doorway in which they view the world and work in the world. So if I'm working with lawyers or prosecutors or military, um, it's going through the doorway of what they understand and what drives them to do their work and then explain how that's peace building. Mm. But it's not just taking a generic definition because then there's nothing for the brain or lived experience to connect to. So that's, you know, that's where, like, I didn't realize I was doing peace building work until I was in it. Right, right. So your book is actually specifically written for rule of law practitioners and policymakers. And you've said this term a couple times, rule of law is, it's a term that most people don't hear every day, especially outside of the international community. So what is rule of law? How would you define that? Yeah, I would define rule of law, and it's often been defined in terms along these lines. And that is, in short, no matter who you are, what your status in life, where you come from, you are held accountable to the same set of laws as everybody else. And so um, that's really the basic tenor of the of the rule of law definition. But I think really it comes down to um, when I was working in different countries, you see up front what that means. And I think sometimes it helps. We did a video a number of years ago at USIP called What is Rule of Law? And what was helpful is to describe what happens when there is not the rule of law. Because when you say that kind of technical term, um, that may resonate with some people, but it may not. And it may resonate with people who have a system of justice and laws, but that's not going to resonate with people who live in countries where maybe they aren't, they don't, you can't understand something that you've never lived. And so another way of looking at it is to explain what happens when there is no rule of law. 
And that is, um, for example, people who live under oppressive regime or a dictator know well what it's like living without rule of law. And this is a situation where those in power can do as they choose and without consequences. Also, those who speak out against the leaders risk being imprisoned, tortured, or even killed. It's a situation where really human rights are non-existent, and especially for those in society who are powerless. So you really look at that as it's such a fundamental um, concept that I think in my perspective, and I don't think it's just because I'm a lawyer, is that really when you look at things like rule of law along those terms, it's at the heart of what um, can create peace. And the absence of it can be a driver of comp- you know, conflict. Mm-hmm. My experiences have definitely deepened my appreciation for the rule of law. At the same time, it's deepened my appreciation for how quickly and over time it can erode. And I think that's the most, to me, the most frightening thing. Um, in a lot of the countries in which I work, a lot of people like to say, oh, it's they're having violence because they're different, or there's lots of reasons. But the reality is not all of them have been always in conflict. And over time, there was some semblance of a structure, uh, rule of law at some level, even if it wasn't um, perfect, at some point in their history. Um, Not always, but in many cases. So to say that there's something different, sometimes I think that makes us feel safe because it's us and them and we're different and we can't ever be like that. But if you look at our own history, we have been at war. And we were in a civil war, and there were divisions. And so I think the most important thing is how fragile rule of law can be when in a society the people um, do not hold it within their own consciousness, do not value it, and do not ensure that it is that it is always upheld. And so it's also a situation where if you have political actors or others who create division, Um, spread hate or pick at the scabs of history, you know, in in different countries where there were certain groups that were marginalized or history of abuses. And when you start picking at the scabs or when you start scapegoating one group or another in order to solidify your political power, that's like playing with fire. And over time that I've seen in countries is this kind of division and this kind of pitting each other against, um, each other or breaking down people's sense of um, humanity or shared humanity, that's when rule of law gets eroded and then that's where violent conflict can take over. And then those who benefit from it, you know, criminals and others, that's their, their preferred working place. Wow. So you have a solid amount of experience working in domestic U.S. law, and now you've traveled around the world and you've done rule of law work in dozens of countries, 15 to be exact. Um, What are some of the contrasts you've seen in how law is practiced here in the U.S. versus in those other countries? Um, What's interesting is one might assume um, living here, if you hadn't been to other countries, especially conflict-affected countries, Um, that all countries have written laws, that these laws are applied in justice systems, staffed by judges, prosecutors, and defense attorneys. But in reality, this is just not the case. The World Bank estimates um, in a 2011 
World Development Report that 80% of people in fragile states actually rely on non-state actors for justice and security. And that's a huge, huge percentage. What, when, what's an example of a non-state actor? Um, these may include like tribal leaders, militias, or armed groups. For example, in Nepal during their insurgency, the Maoists were actually providing a level of justice and security. Now, we may we may definitely argue that was contrary to international standards, but it was a system. The Taliban um, are providing a service. Again, we can debate and argue that is certainly not the system that is wanted, um, but it fills a gap. And sometimes when the formal system, if it does exist, or the leadership is such that is not responsive, people will go to those. I mean, I grew up in Nevada, in Las Vegas, Nevada. We had organized crime. And that was a form of um, non-state actors enforcing the law. I'm using quote marks around that. Um, so, it, you know, it just really depends um, on the situation. And also, even if you do have a formal justice system, for example, in Afghanistan, there's a formal system per se in, in the main cities, but not elsewhere. And so, again, people make certain assumptions of how systems work when in reality they don't. And more often than not, it's a mixed system depending upon the region and its history. Mm. So you talked about growing up in Vegas and organized crime, but then also the Maoists in Nepal and the Taliban. And I'm not equating the three of them. But I think it's an important point that you made is that sometimes here in the United States there's a sense that Oh, we've got it maybe figured out or we've got uh, a, an idea a, a view of a, a version of rule of law that other countries should look to and aspire to and there's some a certain element of perfection there but it's interesting that growing up in Vegas which as you said was like a hotbed of organized crime but then also seeing how there's another version of that that exists in different forms in, in other countries you know is that something that you're kind of reminding yourself that you know, obviously in this country we have our own struggle with our own issues of rule of law that are in some ways similar to how other countries struggle with it as well. Oh, absolutely. And and with the work that we do, most of my work um, in the past few years has really – or like the last 10 years actually has been working with police and communities. And so definitely in that area when, when I'm working in different countries and we're talking about the definition of rule of law or we're talking about an ideal way that police can engage with communities and how you know you can prevent abuses by police, you certainly have to look in your own backyard and come from a shared, um, a shared discussion that we're not coming because we know it all. We're not coming because we have a perfect system. We're coming because we share similar challenges. They may be different, obviously, and I'm not equating um, the the um, uh, impact to be the same, but certain fundamental things um, may be shared. And so it's better to come in that framework where you're really working together rather than coming from we know it all. All right. All right. Well, thank you. We're going to go to a small break, and then uh, we'll come back and continue.
And we're back. You're listening to The Peace Frequency, a podcast series tapping into the stories of people across the globe who are making peace possible and finding ways to create a world free of violent conflict. I'm your host, Darren Cambridge, and joining me on today's show is my co-host and USIP colleague, Jody Nardi. Hi, Jody. Hello. And our guest is Colette Rausch, Associate Vice President for Global Practice and Innovation at the United States Institute of Peace and editor of the new book, Fighting Serious Crimes, Strategies and Tactics for Conflict-Affected States. So, Colette, your most recent book, Fighting Serious Crimes, uh, is just about to come out. When actually is the official release date of that book? Early June. Okay, early June. But it is, in fact, a continuation from another book that you edited that came out in 2006 called Combating Serious Crimes in Post-Conflict Societies, a handbook for policymakers and practitioners. So I'd love for you to take us back to that project for a moment. And let's start actually with the concept that drives both of these books. What constitutes a serious crime? One could argue that all crimes are serious, but for purposes of this book, serious crimes are defined by their impact. And how we look at that is that they are criminal acts that can destabilize a conflict-affected society in a very significant way, such as threatening peace and order or even jeopardizing economic and political reform. Organized crime, corruption, ethnic or religious violence, those are common forms of serious crimes. So what was the impetus for writing that first book? What was going on in the world or in the field in 2006 that really compelled you and the co-authors um, to, to put together this handbook? There were really two things. One is um, when I arrived in Kosovo, my colleagues and I came face to face with the impact of serious crimes. And we really felt we had nowhere to turn for guidance on addressing it. And we saw specifically how severe of a problem serious crimes are in conflict-affected societies. And that's really because law and order has often broken down in such places. And um, with law enforcement weak or non-existent, for example, in Kosovo, there really were no police. The Serbs originally who held that position had fled. So Kosovo had to start training a whole new police force um, in order to take over for the international police who were deployed. So without having an effective law enforcement and criminal justice system, serious crimes proliferate. Criminals aren't afraid of being arrested or convicted. And the more that these crimes occur, the weaker the law enforcement grows, and it's really a vicious cycle. And even in some conflict-affected societies, um, the governments and the security forces themselves have become captured by serious crimes, with the criminals and officials working hand-in-hand. And this alliance really makes it more likely that a society will explode into violence or find it impossible to escape from war and to rebuild. And so really, when we all left Kosovo, we were determined to help others address these problems by creating a book that could help in their fight against serious crimes. And we wanted to do this by sharing lessons about what has worked, um, why it's worked, and really also what has not worked. So what some specific examples from not just Kosovo, but you know the other countries you've been to, Nepal, Burma, um, you know Libya... What are some specific examples of the types of serious crimes that were going on or are going on in those countries? Um, for example, in Kosovo, the concern was right after NATO entered, when the Serbs fled, there was a growing problem with retaliation um, against the Serbs who were left there. 
So the Serb judges and others were, were being threatened. And also any of the Kosovar Albanians who had been cooperating at the time with the Serbs, they were also being threatened. And so there was this kind of a retaliatory free-for-all. And at the time, you know, even when I was there, I had judges coming up to me, you know, afraid for their life. And we really, there was only so much that could be done. And it was really traumatic for those of us who were working there to just not be able to to be um, helpful in some way. And so when you have that kind of violence, that's the type of thing that makes it very difficult to for a country to build peace. Or, for example, in Nepal. And Nepal, right in... Um, at the end of their insurgency, there was a popular, as they called it, John Andalin II, or popular people's revolution. Um, people took this to the streets, um, condemning the king and the government at that time for shutting down civil liberties. And so to make a long story short, um, when we arrived there as part of USIP, about two days late to see what we could do to help, about two days later, the king stepped down. And peace negotiations started. So while they were negotiating a peace agreement, the Maoists who decided to come in and work with the government to, to um, craft a peace agreement, there were splinter groups in the southern part of the country who didn't want to be part of this process. And so they were engaged in kidnapping. Um, there, there was one area where they had burned the government buildings. And that was a very dangerous situation where that – those two splinter groups could have divided the country again. Mm -hmm. And so this is those are two examples why it's so crucial in order to get a handle on these so you can nip it in the bud or, or know if it could be coming so that you could do things to prevent it. Otherwise, peace processes could be completely blown, um, blown apart. So what has changed and shifted in the world over the last 11 years that warranted um, a rewrite or an updated edition of this book? Okay, a lot of things have changed. Um, what we found is the principles that were in the book were still relevant. Um, at the same time, there's, as you mentioned, a lot of things have changed in the past 11 years. And what we've seen is there's been a lot of missions that have been successful, others a lot less so. We've learned a lot more about what works, what doesn't. And also a lot of new tools and techniques have been developed, used in the field and refined. So we were able to survey some of the countries that are coming out of conflict or in, um, affected by conflict over the past 10, 11 years and start pulling from those lessons and, and augmenting the case studies. Um, I would say there are two dangerous trends in particular that have been growing and more pronounced. One is that serious crimes are getting more transnational. They certainly were 11 years ago, and they certainly were when I was a prosecutor, but they've become even more so with the webs of criminal activity spreading from country to country. And these also threaten to engulf whole regions. Also, the second one, I would say, are the links between serious crimes and terrorists and other violent extremists are growing stronger. So the impact of serious crimes is only getting bloodier. When I was a prosecutor, we are worried about cybercrime and the growing nature of that. Well, now that has just become a fact of life. And the use of technology um, has grown. I used to say um, it's like criminal organizations are like amoebas. You pull and push into one area and they sprout out into the other. And it just gets magnified in a society that is so linked and hyperlinked. And um, as I mentioned, technology and just the way the world's become more global and interacting in a much broader way year by year. Hmm. Hmm. 
So you've had the opportunity to work with a lot of different contributors with both these books, peace builders, uh, legal, international law experts. So I'm sure that over the course of these two books, you were able to learn quite a bit from these these folks. Um, so if you had to pick just two or three of your top key learnings um, from other contributors to the book, what would those be? So like another way to think about the question is, do you actually think any differently or a new or in a more nuanced way about these rule of law issues as a result of editing this book and being able to collaborate with these other contributors? Yeah, definitely. Um, I would say that the one thing where my understanding has just greatly expanded relates to understanding the ecosystem in which the tools to fight serious crimes exist. And we touch upon this a little bit in the um, first book, but in this book, we greatly expanded it in the introduction, the examples, as well as adding a conclusion. And specifically, um, if you don't fully consider the political, social, and economic context in which you're fighting serious crimes, you will not be successful. And that's at best. At worst, you could actually make it make the situation um, even more um, violent and uh, difficult. So as, as is written in the conclusion of the book, um, looking at the political and social context with, with economics related to that, is the politics of hate and division have long been used um, or deployed by unscrupulous leaders as a way to win elections, hold on to power. And so when you have fragile states, leaders who play this game risk tearing apart the social fabric. And when you look at countries when there's been atrocities or marginalization, marginalization of certain groups or ethnic or religious issues being used to stoke um, violent, then you have a situation where certain leaders or, or groups of um, combatant groups or leaders like the Maoists, the Maoists in Nepal, using that to manipulate memories that underlie historical traumas and stoke fears that the survival of one's identity or group is in danger. And when you have those um, existential threats, whether they're real or perceived, it can lead, you know, lead very quickly to escalating violent conflict. And um, you know, we've seen even in countries where, like Nepal, who is, you know, is fairly stable for many years, and even countries that, are well, that have well-established democratic political systems and generally robust economies are not immune to the forces of division that can erode the very principles upon which they were founded. And so I think that's really, in the countries that I've worked, I've seen this play out. I've seen it play out that, yes, the tools are important. All of the formal systems that you need to put into place are important for a criminal justice system, but it's not just a criminal justice or a law enforcement problem. Mm-hmm. It's sitting in that ecosystem surrounded by political forces, economic forces, and social forces that impact um, how successful or not serious crimes um, combating those occur or affect serious crimes and that they can drive them and exacerbate them. Mm-hmm. What about like disagreements or debates that you may have had with other contributors in the book? Because I think you're in a unique and privileged position as the editor to essentially decide what ends up in the book. And I can only assume that there are a variety of different perspectives and assumptions and experiences that go into what people want to contribute um, to fighting or combating serious crimes. Were there any, you know, healthy debates that were had between you and other contributors or amongst other contributors where there was just a disagreement on whether or not this is something that belongs in the book? I think that the um, most of the debates 
surrounded the uh, what I would argue is the balance between uh, justice and security or human rights and security. I guess I would say that's that is primarily where the debates were. I think most everything else through a lot of discussion and meetings there was a consensus. So it really wasn't that much of an issue. But I think um, the debate, and which is interesting, it was a ba- debate that we not only had when we were putting together the book, but a debate that I've been part of at the table with um, in different countries when you're debating what laws to pass. So specifically, it's, okay, if you're going to have a covert surveillance um, system or um, you're going to give more power to the police or more power to the executive branch. The concern naturally that people have is how much power do you give them and where are the checks and balances. And so what I found is that some of the folks, not just in this book, but even in when I worked in different countries on law reform, like in Afghanistan or in Liberia, you had people coming from more well-developed societies from the outside demanding or encouraging certain laws be put into place. Now, certainly, there's international treaties and organizations like UNODC and others um, are always encouraging countries to adopt um, laws. To what's, help. what's UNODC? UN Office of Drugs and Crime. Uh-huh. So you certainly have um, pressure from the international community for countries to adopt laws to address terrorism, for example and to address organized crime. So there are treaties and there, you know, people are encouraged to, whether it's passing laws or setting up structures to be able to adequately uh, address those problems. The challenge really becomes when folks from one area come and demand that something be done in another country where, A, maybe they don't have the resources, maybe they don't have the checks and balances, and maybe they have a history of abuse in that area that basically what you're doing is um, taking a match and lighting lighting gasoline. And so this is really where the debates came came up. And that's why you'll see in the book, there are a number of um, experts and contributors from a variety of different countries. Because it's crucial when you're passing laws to understand, again, the ecosystem in which you're, you're going in. And are you going to do more harm by pushing for certain laws that maybe then you're going to have greater violations? And at the end of the day, create a great system for the criminals because there will be chaos. <laughs> um, so you're not helping yourself. And the other area um, related to that was the police powers. And especially when it relates to, um, in the first book, terrorism, because it was just post 9-11, was the big, big thing. Um, and now, obviously, we're talking about violent extremism and terrorism. And so the issue here became securitizing the um, the problem. And so the debates were, how much should we use to... Um, whether it's a military response or, or a police response and, you know, crack down on these, these cases. And then the others were saying that, you know, the evidence shows that you could actually drive some of these folks when you have, you know, gross violations of human rights, you could actually drive them into the arms of the violent extremists and the terrorists. And so it was those kind of debates. Um, how do you balance this? to get to the goal that you want, which is to prevent terrorism and violent extremism and not actually exacerbating the problem. Mm-hmm. Right. So your book lays out these nine um, foundational guiding principles for fighting serious crimes. Could you could you read these to us, these nine principles? Sure. Um, they are one, be realistic in setting goals. 
Two, recognize you're in it for the long haul. Three, make sure you have adequate resources. Four, recognize the broader social, economic, political, and conflict-related aspects of serious crimes. Five, ensure that adequate domestic accountability mechanisms are in place. Six, design and implement an approach to serious crimes in the context of a broader rule of law strategy. Seven, respect and protect fair trial and due process rights. Eight, build sustainable capacity. And nine, think beyond borders. Great. So over your 20-plus year career in fighting serious crimes in conflict-affected communities, can you tell us about a moment where you saw one of these principles really violated? Um, I would say that the one principle that I think is the hardest um, to implement and I, and I think at the same time is one of the most important is recognize you're in it for the long haul. And what we see is um, given funding cycles, political election cycles, and personnel shifts, we usually see a series of one-year strategies. And this is just not a recipe for success. In a well-resourced country with a decent functioning criminal justice system, it can take multiple years to address a major criminal organization. When I was a federal prosecutor, it was a matter of years where we were investigating and um, pulling down criminal organizations. So it's just not realistic to think that we're going to fix an entire justice system and get everything in order in a conflict-affected state in just one year. So if you look at a country emergency war where their leaders were perhaps working hand-in-hand with criminal organizations and insurgents groups and were getting funded by arms smuggling, you know, that's a very complex problem to have a one-year strategy for. So on the flip side, could you tell us about a moment when you saw one of these principles truly embraced or which one um, (laughs) – she's shaking her head (laughs) You know, it's interesting because um, when we were doing this book, we acknowledged that what we were putting out were principles and a framework for things that ideally people would consider, knowing – that it's not possible to do it all. And also to know that the criminal justice system, as I had mentioned earlier, is part of a larger system. And you'll hear the term systems approach. And sometimes people hear that and they just go you know, blurry-eyed because they think to work on a whole system is too big. So let's just work on one piece. But what we don't realize is by working on that one piece, we're not going to fix it. So as I say, um, look at look at it that you're in it for the long haul. If we would just suck it up, you know, look at the broader strategy, look at where we want to go, what is the end state that we want to go generally, and then start taking steps towards that, even if we know it's going to be multiple years or in some situations generational. At least you start on that road. You get solid using a planting gardening Mm. Um, term, (laughs) you get solid roots in there. It's hard to pull those roots out. Mm -hmm. So you get roots in, you go stronger, you create a system of change management where you're working with people. And if you need to take a side road, you take a side road. It's not going to be linear. It may be two steps forward, three back, four forward. You may have to, you know, as I mentioned, deviate off the path. You may need to create a new path, but at least you're moving towards the end state. And I think what happens is it's just sometimes... Like I mentioned, because of the 
funding cycles, for a lot of different reasons, we revert to what seems easy and low-hanging fruit, but then we're just doomed ourselves to not getting there. You know, I liken it to, you know, if you're trying to lose weight, you know, you got to look at, or you're trying to get healthy, you got to look at all of the different systems of working. You can't just look at one little thing like, oh, I'm just going to walk. Well, that's not going to help if you aren't looking at the larger picture and how your body's working and what foods you need to eat, what kind of food and how much sleep you need to get. I mean, that's just one smaller system. Think about a system of governance and um, justice and security. So it's hard for me to answer that and say there is because there isn't. And I think sometimes it's that human, that human nature thing of um, we can just fix this mm-hmm. um, and it'll only take a year. And we've all been subjected to that. You know, I, we did a book a couple of years ago. I thought it was only going to take a year or two, and it took eight years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, <laughs> so I mean, I'm guilty of it too. But at the same time, that's why in the book we lay it out in a way that says, here's the structure. Here's where you want to move, knowing not everybody's going to get there, but at least have that vision forward. So at least you know what you're working towards, even if it's multiple years in a generation. So, you know, that reminds me, we offer a course, uh, the USIP Global Campus, that is, offers a course called Strategic Peace Building. And uh, in the course, the instructor, George Lopez, he lays out seven components of strategic peace building. And we'll actually share um, an infographic of these on the the program notes um, online. But one of the components is that peace builders need to, quote, recognize the burdens of long-term violence. And he says, and I'm paraphrasing here a bit, that we cannot expect a 30-day or one-year peace process to yield sustainable results when it's attempting to address what was a 30-year Conflict, and so you know, as I'm listening to you talk, I see this really being connected to that that um, that component of strategic peace building, and uh, but we're all people, and so I think you were getting at this. You've got other projects. You know, you're working not just on one country and one conflict. You're working on many. Um, the institute and the place in which you work is working on a variety of different conflicts. There's different priorities. Uh, the US, USIP is connected in some way to U.S. foreign policy interests. Those are going to shift from time to time, administration to administration. And, you know, you were shaking your head like, can you fully embrace these principles? But I do think this is one of the most difficult ones. Why even state it if it's so difficult to actually immerse yourself as an individual or more largely as an institution for – 10, 15, 20, 30 plus years to try and help another country heal from what was a 30, 40 year conflict. Um, So I think for you personally, when you're asked to uh, engage in a country and address serious crimes, but you know that, you know, for whatever reason, you're not going to be able to commit more than a year, two years, three years. How do you reconcile that? Yeah, now that that's an excellent question, and um, I'll give two answers. One is a naive answer that I had many years ago when I was a prosecutor, and the telemarketing crimes were just taking over the country. And I had this view, but mind you, I was only about twenty; I was in my late twenties. So, okay. and I thought if I just worked hard enough, prosecuted enough cases, I'd stop telemarketing. <laughs> and then it occurred to me that's just not possible. It's going to be going on as long as you know I'm alive. Um, So it was at that moment that I realized, okay, then what is my job? My job is to do the best I can with each case and to not think that success means I make it to the, you know, 
in, as you mentioned, in peace building, the 30-year mark or total transformation. My job in the long haul is to see where I would want it to go because otherwise if you don't have the North Star, how the heck do you know where, if you're even going in the right direction mm-hmm. and know generally along the way what might happen. But be okay that if I make small steps. So for example, in that situation, I realized if I worked with FBI agents and helped them write better search warrants, boom, there was a seed that I planted. And if I worked on certain cases, boom, that's that, you know, fewer or less people who are victimized. That's a success along the way. So turning it to peace building, this book was um, an example of that. We know, well, first of all, it's a little egotistical and pretentious to think that, you know, we're super people and that we're the ones that are going to do it all, number one. And number two, even if we were, which we're not, we can't, you can't keep up with that. You, You just, it's just not possible. So really, it's working with people in a country, um, just like you know when I worked with FBI agents, working with people in a country, build relationships and trust, and have patience, perseverance, um, optimism, and flexibility in working with them to provide tools and come up with solutions. So the book is an example of that, that here's a book that we could give um, to them, and in Nepal, for example, when the first volume came out and it was translated into Nepali, there was a time where the their parliament was really debating what to do about the growing um, splinter insurgency movement and, and the political powers were fighting for power. And that fight with insurgency was going to – could very well just tear the country apart again. And one of the parliamentarians held up the book – and said, listen, have you read what's in here? If we don't get our act together, so to speak, I'm sure it was much more articulate, but something <laughs> along those lines, um, we're going to end up like this. And so to me, that's planting a seed. It's, And then the hope is by nurturing that and supporting people and working with them, those roots, as I mentioned earlier, will go so deep in the soil, it'll be harder to plant. So even if you only get part of the way on the race, you pass that baton. Mm. And then they can pass it and pass it and pass it. Mm. I like that. Thank you. I like that too. Um, So thinking beyond borders is another guiding principle in the book. And this one really struck me as I was reading it because so many serious crimes are transnational or have regional reverberations and impacts and triggers that are global in nature. So from your perspective, what serious crimes do you see as being the most global in nature? Um, I'd say that there are two aspects to this. Um, One is where the serious crimes are global just by their nature. And certainly look at the news today, um, violent extremism, terrorism, and we have to not forget corruption because corruption is um, usually hand-in-hand with violent extremism and terrorism. But there's also another aspect of the global part of serious crimes, and this is where neighboring countries have an interest in a country and can fuel insecurity that exacerbates or feeds serious crimes. So if you have a neighboring country um, that provides arms to insurgent groups, um, that's another global nature, Um, or where there are proxy wars taking place in one country and two other countries are fighting out and using that. Um, center country um, as a battleground for a proxy war. So that's where serious crimes get intertwined in a global, where it may be exporting it <laughs> with terrorism and extremism, um, or where other countries are, so to speak, importing it um, because of their own political or, or um, other interests that they have. 
So how does that impact how the work is done when um, the sources of that crime and conflict are, are extend across so many borders? Yeah, it certainly makes it more difficult. On the legal side, it requires, for example, agreements to cooperate, such as mutual legal assistance treaties or MLATs. And these allow the gathering of sharing of information. So countries will enter into these agreements um, and they can share evidence um, and other things. So those are crucial because if you're, you have the victim venue in your country but the perpetrators are in another country and you, if you have a victim venue ability in your country, you're going to need the cooperation of the fellow state um, to, share, to share evidence with you so you could take legal action. But it's even more difficult if the neighboring country happens to be funding or benefiting from those engaged in serious crimes. And that's a situation where um, you will find sometimes diplomatic efforts to try to prevent that from happening. Um, so it just, it just obviously makes it more difficult because of jurisdiction, because of resources, and because of the limited tools sometimes that you have when it's not happening in your borders. Mm-hmm. And is, is there a specific example of in your most recent work where those MLATs have had to come into play? Um, yes. Um, I'll go back to when I was a prosecutor. We were what I would call the exporters of um, telemarketers who would export and call into Canada and other places. And so it was unusual when telemarketers were in another country and calling into our country and to victimize our elderly people. And there was a case in Canada where there were telemarketers in Canada who were calling in and victimizing American elderly um, victims. So we worked with the Canadian government and through mutual legal assistance treaties, um, we were able to get evidence and they executed search warrants in their country, we supported evidence for them so that they could take action. Um, so that was an example. And another example when I was a prosecutor was we had in Las Vegas a woman who had taken off with her boyfriend um, an armored car. It was an armored car heist. And um, they tracked them down through Central Mexico and Central America um, and found out that they ended up in Costa Rica. And sadly, um, she ended up being killed under mysterious circumstances, um, and it looked like she had really been influenced. She was the daughter of a, a, a former cop, and um, she influenced by her boyfriend. So, to make a long story short, um, I went down to Costa Rica with the uh, with the DEA and FBI agent because the judge had all of the money. You know, like I can't remember at the time, it was like millions of dollars. Had the cash that the boyfriend had carted into Costa Rica, and they had. Um, impounded the money and arrested him at the border. And the judge only wanted to give it to U.S. federal authorities. I can imagine it's because he didn't want it to go missing and didn't want to be accused. So he was trying to do the right thing. And so that was very unusual because that's where we went down there and go into this office that is a real, like almost no bigger than a large walk-in closet. And he just opens up a file cabinet and there's all this money. (laughs) And um, we had to sign for it. It was, you know, we only had typewriters, you know, so we were signing that we took money and then um, had to carefully, quietly get over into the embassy because there was concern that at that time with Nicaragua, there were they were going over borders and hitting banks, and so we had to go in unmarked cars that didn't and couldn't have weapons or anything 
because we didn't want to, you know, look like we were had money. Mm-hmm. So that that was a little that was very different. That was very unusual. And then we went to the embassy and they counted all the money. And the smell of money is like overwhelming, not in a positive way. But it was just that was a very unusual MLAT. Usually it's not that hands on. Right. <laughs> Usually <laughs> it's um you know, the courts sign it and their seals and they, they ship it over. But that was that was very unusual. Hmm. Well before we go to another break, um, you know, you've shared a lot of interesting stories and how much of this work over these last twenty years do you, is it like exciting for you? Is there like an excitement level there, or how much of it of it is more kind of process paper? You know, kind of submitting the appropriate legal documents to go through the proper chain. How's that mixture for you? I mean, the story you just told about going to Costa Rica and then you know all this money in a closet. I mean, that sounds exciting. How much of this work? is like that versus how much of it is it more like we have the appropriate documents did you fill out correctly the legalese is correct did all the you know t's are crossed i's are dotted what's the blend like in doing this work um i can only speak for myself yeah. and i found all of it exciting and i think it's because as soon as it starts getting um standard or boring <laughs> i it's like i'm peeling an onion i find another layer that i can work on mm-hmm. so when I go through my career, it's as I feel like I've had multiple careers. So even in rule of law, where I was really into the law reform, that was exciting. When I kind of got that under my belt, then I moved into other areas. Mm-hmm. And now the work I do in, um, in like one of the books that we did, Speaking Their Peace, that was a whole different genre. So for me, it's not boring because I won't stay there if I felt like I've kind of mastered it or it's not yeah. interesting anymore. Yeah, right, right, right. Cool. Thank you. back. You're listening to The Peace Frequency, a podcast series tapping into the stories of people across the globe who are making peace possible and finding ways to create a world free of violent conflict. I'm your host, Darren Cambridge, and joining me on today's show is my co-host and USIP colleague, Jody Nardi, and our guest is Colette Rausch, Associate Vice President for Global Practice and Innovation at the United States Institute of Peace and editor of the new book, Fighting Serious Crimes, Strategies and Tactics for Conflict affected states. So, Colette, as you detail in your book, uh, the tools and methods used to fight serious crimes have really increased dramatically over the years, especially in recent years. And one of the tools that you focus on is witness protection. In the U.S., when most of us think of witness protection, we think of the Hollywood version, right? You enter a witness protection program, the federal agents come in, they take you to a small town, you get a new house, new ID, um, you, you start a new life. But that's clearly not the reality, especially in conflict-affected countries. So what does witness protection look like in those contexts? You're right. One form of witness protection is what you see on TV, (laughs) where they give you a new ID and whisk you and your family away to live a new life. There are also other uh, means to protect witnesses. And this could be while you're testifying. It could be behind a screen. Um, It could be an anonymous witness. Of course, there's challenges with that because there's, you know, the position that people need to be able to challenge 
or you know confront their accuser. But there are different variations of witness protection. Um, but you're right; it's certainly more challenging to implement um, in a country emerging from conflict. This is because of factors such as lack of resources as well as adequate laws, but it could also be simply because of the nature of the country itself and its own history. In Kosovo, for example, this was a huge challenge um, when they were trying to build cases and protect the witnesses that would be testifying against some of the organized criminal elements, and that's because Kosovo is very small and their extended families, and there's deep connections that make it next to impossible for someone to truly be hidden. Even if you did have the resources and ability and the laws to move them, where would you move them? Because everybody would know um, who was a new person in their village. So there was a lot of discussion about perhaps the need to move a witness and their family literally out of the country in some place um, in Europe. But again, that's a big challenge for a lot of different reasons. So it's certainly not an easy thing to do on any large scale. Okay. And so how, what's the workaround? How can witness protection measures be adopted and applied in countries where the state law doesn't necessarily protect these witnesses? Yeah. The first thing is to be realistic and to do an assessment. So um, to assess the nature of the crime, the existing laws, and the existing criminal justice system. And then with that knowledge from the assistant, then what you ideally would do is the folks in that country would consult with other countries, not just developed countries, but countries that are coming out of conflict and find out what worked, what are certain things we can do. And that's where in the Kosovo situation or in other situations, sometimes there's agreements between countries that that somebody could come stay for a while. Um, They come up with creative ways until the case ends and then they would come back. So it's just really trying to be realistic and not giving up, but not have these idealistic views that um, it's going to be like it is on TV. Because even in the U.S., it's not quite that way. (laughs) It doesn't doesn't look that way. So anyway, anyway, it's just being very realistic and making sure that the laws are drafted with understanding the current situation. Have you ever been privy or part of a case where you've had to approach somebody and you've offered them some form of witness protection like you just talked about, but just out of pure fear or uh, they just don't think that any type of witness protection program that you know an organization or the government is going to provide them is going to be enough and they say, I'm, I'm not – I'm not going to testify. I'm not going to be a witness. I'm not going to talk about this. So they may have such crucial information that can help address a serious crime, but they just don't feel like the protection is going to be there for them. For the cases that I I um, prosecuted, most of the key witnesses that I had were actually part of the organization, and so they were testifying in exchange under a plea agreement. Okay. So it's a little bit different circumstances but there's so also i some, didn't need I mean, to even if they accept a plea right yeah I'm, this is all based off of my consumption of law and order <laughs> so <laughs> even they accept a plea aren't they couldn't they be seen as you know you're snitching on us and we're going to come and get you after you uh, yeah i'm sh- def- yeah. i mean definitely i think when you look through the history of organized crime in the u.s that story that, repeats that, itself. Yeah, yeah and it's happened it's definitely happened but the cases that i i had that was not so much of a threat okay. Um, because in that, I mean, to me in that situation, it was such a strong system, Okay, there would be accountability. So where it gets dangerous is if you're like in the United States or anywhere, if you're in a community where there is no protection for you, 
and you don't trust the law enforcement. You don't trust anybody. You're not going to speak up because there's nobody there to protect. Whereas in the system I was in, if it was deemed to be necessary, and there's criteria. So at least in the U.S., the Marshal Service will do an assessment to determine. So if it's determined, then there's protection given. Okay. Um, and so judges who have who have ruled over certain cases, they've been given protection. So we have a – that's the federal system. So let me just clarify. In the federal system, it's a very different scenario. Okay. If, but if you're in a, in a state system and you're in certain neighborhoods, mm. you know, it's, it just could be a different equation. Do you know what I mean? Um, mm. So it's hard to speak to that because I didn't work in that area. Right. But I right. think it really depends upon what the trust is, what the track record is, um, and whether anybody truly can – find that someone's safe where in the federal system there was a lot more flexibility even where you put them in prison Mm -hmm. you know they could be sent to another prison that's not even in that state yeah they could be marked as somebody who had cooperated so there's different ways going back to your point to protect witnesses you know keep them away from where you know we had people who were separated to different prisons so they weren't the same prison as their the people that they testified against Mm -hmm. but again that's a federal system Mm -hmm. a much Different, different uh, beast. Yeah. beast. Yeah, <laughs> compared to what I would say, the state or local, right? And certainly, in, you know, in the other countries um, in which you know we work, mm-hmm. it's a completely different. So that's why I'm saying it's so crucial in witness protection or any of these to have a firm understanding of the dynamics going on in that place and assess it, and then determine what works and what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And some people you may not have testified at all. You may need to use their evidence in order to hopefully get other witnesses that I you can see. use. Okay. Interesting. Another tool that you mentioned in the book is covert surveillance, which given the proliferation of internet as a recruitment for extremist groups, terrorist organizations, it seems like an indispensable tool in the fight against serious crimes. Um, how is this type of tool of covert surveillance applied in conflict areas where resources and capacities are, are limited? And I'll, I'll provide a little bit more context. I think this, this debate around surveillance is uh, a healthy one here in the United States around what people know about you in terms of your internet usage, what you're saying on the phone, um, transcriptions, all that stuff, but then also drones, aerial footage. I feel like we can see, hear, read so many more things now today than we could you know, 15, 20 years ago. So there's huge technological capabilities here in the United States, other highly industrialized um, countries. But in other countries, that technological capacity may not be there. So I guess it's a two-part question. Um, one is, are there similar debates and, and concerns in other countries around uh, privacy of people's information? Uh, and then second question is, what are those other forms of covert surveillance when the technology isn't, isn't mm-hmm. there, isn't very advanced? Yeah, this – this was one of those topics um, when you had mentioned earlier uh, where debates had taken place amongst those who were involved in the book. This is definitely one of them. And um, for two reasons. One is let's look at um, like Europe or the U.S. Even within Europe and the U.S., there are different views of privacy. And so um, for some, covert surveillance, even in a non-conflict-affected society, was very worrisome because of the culture and history. Um, you know, you look like, you look at Germany, 
you know, that was conflict affected and how covert surveillance and other forms of surveillance were used in, in a way of, in, with, you know, huge um, gross abuses. So whenever this topic comes up, wherever you are in the world, but especially in conflict-affected societies, it has to be proceeded upon with much caution. It's an investigative tool that allows the police to investigate crimes, um, particularly where the planning of these crimes occurs within a closed group. You know, for example, a a terrorist um, focus group, a terrorism focus group, or an organized criminal gang. So resources and capabilities are needed to successfully use covert um, surveillance, and that's an important factor to use too. But I think one of the most important things to consider um, that, yes, they're important and you may need them in certain circumstances, and yes, you need the resources and capacities, but at the same time, you have to look at the history of the country and its engagement with covert surveillance. This is especially true in countries where it's been um, abusively used against the people. So there was um, a lot of discussion in the former Yugoslavia. There was a, a lawyer who we worked with in the, with the book, and he was very vocal about the concerns because how covert surveillance had been used in the former Yugoslavia. And when there was this push to just adopt these laws again in Kosovo and Bosnia, he was pushing back saying, wait, wait, wait. You know, it's like you're, you're giving tools to a system that has no checks and balances, has a history of abuse, and it's going to go right back to that. And then you're going to be right back in conflict again because you're providing the tools by which um, are going to seed more conflict. So it just has to be used. It's a balancing, again, going back to – and it has to be balanced by the ability of the um, country to use it as well as to safeguard it and have accountability. Because even in the U.S., you know, there's – there's rules on yeah. how it could be used in a criminal case, you know, with warrants and other things. It's not you, so you just have to be careful. That's, yeah, you know, hearing you talk about this, it reminds me of or makes me think of that tension between um, freedom and security or stability versus peace that they're not those are not all the same things Um, you can be highly secure but not free at all you can be very stable but there actually not be any peace and i feel like covert surveillance like falls into that and talking about former yugoslavia this reminds me i had a student um whose parents grew up in former yugoslavia under tito Mm -hmm. and um she had made a comment in the class about how Things used to be so great in Yugoslavia before, obviously, yes, war, conflict, terrible, horrible things, but that things were so much better before under Tito. Uh, and she's younger. I don't, she didn't grow up under that. But I think her parents had memories of things were stable, things were secure, people weren't killing each other. But it also sounds like I don't know too much about the history of Yugoslavia, but it sounds like, you know, the person you're mentioning, sure, there was some security there, but there was little to no freedom and people mm-hmm. didn't feel like they could say what they wanted. Freedom of speech and freedom of assembly was not something, a standard practice or encouraged or anything like that. And uh, do you feel those tensions in some of these countries that you've, you've uh, done rule of law work in where you're, you're shifting, you feel a country shifting more towards security at the expense of freedom, or you feel like it's shifting more towards an emphasis on let's just stabilize things, but not necessarily worry about there being peace building and healing amongst communities. Just make it stable. Yeah, there, and it's interesting. This is exact debate coming out of Kosovo, and what had happened is 
because of the um, retaliation and the political violence and the things that I mentioned earlier in Kosovo right when NATO came, there was this argument that we have to clamp down now. We can't worry about all this nice stuff. We can't worry about right. human rights and all that now. we got to have to have security. So we're going to do an iron um, fist approach. And there was a lot of – it was a really frustrating time for me because you had that approach and then you had some folks who were saying um, – no, we must have, you know, these standards of human rights. And that those standards were were not realistic. They were not, I mean, the, what they were promoting was not even something that I would say some of their countries were doing because it's a, it's, a, it's a discussion and a balance. And so there was this polarized view. And over time, fortunately, the group started to come together and literally hash it out. I mean, literally argue it out, which was a very painful process. But that was crucial to get to your point because what I would argue is that clamping down of um, heavy security becomes the default. And when is the emergency period? How long does that last? Then that becomes the norm, and that's just as dangerous. But so is trying to import all of these very, um, I don't want to say human rights provisions because that's... um, a lot of openness without having some level of control in a society that was just not in control. So it's really this difficult, I mean, difficult parsing out of you need some stability and you need some rights, but you need to balance this to make sure that neither is, um, has the upper hand, so to speak. We have to be mindful of where we are. Yeah. Um, so anyway, what I'd argue is it's not Either one on both extremes are not right. It's a, it's a balancing of it. Yeah, yeah. So your previous book, Speaking Their Peace, is quite different from this one. Um, Speaking Their Peace is a collection of really deeply personal stories of people living in conflict. So mothers, widows, workers, soldiers. So it made sense to me that in Fighting Serious Crimes, you emphasize working with local communities as a key strategy. Can you share one of uh, the most powerful experiences you've been a part of in which local voices were engaged in the fight against serious crimes? It would definitely be Nepal. Um, And it was right when Nepal was struggling to emerge from the 10-year insurgency that I had talked about earlier. And serious crimes threatened the peace process. And it was a very difficult and very tense period of time. Um, But I had the incredible fortune of working with an amazing group of police and human rights activists there who stepped in to work together and picking up on what I mentioned earlier, this kind of balance. They came together. They built trust. They started a dialogue um, around these really hard issues, you know, hashing it out, and then problem solve. And then not just talking and dialogue, but actually problem solving and pushing that up for policymakers to make changes. And also just working together on some of the fundamental drivers of conflict um, that that was happening within their communities. So it's because of their efforts that Nepal, I I think because of their efforts at kind of keeping the peace, so to speak, or um, a a line of um, stability and peace, that today Nepal's new constitution, um, it's working to grapple with abuses during the insurgency and address some of the drivers of conflict. Um, and that they really have a fighting chance of not repeating its violent past. And I really attribute that to the willingness of these groups who you know, have been fighting against each other 
um, literally, you know, throwing in protest, throwing stones at each other, that they realized that they would put some of that aside and um, come with what united them. And that was a peaceful Nepal. Like they didn't want to go back to the conflict. So they found ways to work together. And some of them, which are interesting now, are very close. And, you know, but they still kept their roles as police and human rights activists, but they transcended that and built some bridges in order to build Nepal in a stronger way. Mm, that's awesome. So, you know, it's clear from your work and the stories that you've told so far, and, and Jody mentioned the book, um, Speaking Their Peace, you had to sit down and listen and uncover people's stories. I mean, this is really, really difficult, particularly when you're speaking with people who've uh, gone through a, a conflict uh, situation and their lives have been adversely impacted. So when we're talking about serious crimes, I'm assuming that you and folks that you work with have to sit down, interview witnesses, hear their stories. You mentioned earlier one of those key principles of understanding the social, political, economic context and really doing a deep conflict analysis. In short, you have to talk to a lot of people and get them to feel comfortable to tell you their story, give you relevant information so that you can better understand the situation, how to move forward, how to work with them. Um, so when you're talking about serious crimes, you mentioned corruption, state capture, human trafficking, all that stuff. You're speaking with not just victims of these crimes, but also perpetrators of these crimes. So I'd love to hear from you what that experience is like. How do you prepare to speak with uh, perpetrators of serious crimes? How do you get access to them? And then what's that experience like sitting down at a table across from them and listening to their story? What has that been experience been like for you? Yeah, it's um, first of all, the willingness and ability to talk with all people involved is front and center of being a peace builder. So to me, there was no other option. And an experience in my past greatly helped me with that. And um, I'm forever thankful for the experience of when I left USIP for a year and became a federal public defender representing death row inmates. And so my clients were individuals who had been convicted um, under and received the death penalty. And so I was representing them in their appeals. To, they weren't going to get out of prison, but my goal was to at least get them a life um, sentence and not, um, you know, put to death. So my goal was to investigate their past, to help people understand who they are as people and what their lives were. And so it was a really different role from being a prosecutor. And I mean, as a prosecutor, I, you know, you, you see things through a certain lens. And so it was a really powerful experience for me to be on the other side of it. And um, so as I got to know my client's background, especially one of them who had been um, just this amazing child growing up but lived in a horrific um, neighborhood and, um, the, you know, he had you know, no support, just terrible things that had happened to him when he was growing up. And I could see through his history when I would track it through how many times had an intervention occurred, it might have changed the course of his life. Now, no one disputes he killed someone. No one disputes he should be in jail, and he doesn't dispute he should be in jail. He doesn't even feel comfortable that he should be out. But at the same time, it helped me understand how people get to this point. Um, and that is different than is someone legally guilty and to understand their background. So that really helped me. So when um, 
for the book, for speaking their piece, I went at it with that in mind, where I was not being judgmental as a human being, if that makes sense. It wasn't my job to be the prosecutor and to hold someone legally guilty. That wasn't my role. My role was to understand what happened. My my role was to try to understand why conflict happens and what can we do to prevent it. And part of that is understanding the story. So I think that's why it, it was just – it links back to the discussion we had earlier about what drove me as a child to get involved in law. It was just understanding like why conflict, why crime, why people do the things they do and are there things we can do to change the course of history and people's lives to have violence not be such a part of it. Mm-hmm. So that kind of gets at um, my next question, which would be how the experience that you have in talking to victims, it sounds like, and talking with perpetrators, many times they they start out or they experience life as victims as well. And mm-hmm. and listening to their stories of, tra- you know, they've gone through trauma and hurt and deep pain and grief. Um, what is that like for you to absorb those experiences? Yeah, I'll give you um, two answers. One is the answer before I started to understand how to better cope with it. (laughs) And then the second one is what I did um, in response that helped cope with it. In the beginning, I don't think I was fully prepared for it. And so when I first started to do some of the interviews, I I was trying really hard to pay attention. But at the same time, I could feel myself being impacted by the stories. And so it was getting harder and harder to absorb the information that was going on. And then when I would get home, I'd feel very out of sorts. And um, it would take like a week or two to just kind of, depending upon the interviews, it would just take a few weeks to kind of get my system back. Um, so at the time, I was doing everything from, you know, getting, um, um, you know, reflexology on my toes to massages to like whatever, because I just felt very uncomfortable. And that's how I got involved in gardening. And so gardening and vegetable gardening was like my therapy. (laughs) So, and my husband would say, you've got to stop growing things. I grow more and more and more and more, you know, because it's something that I could see that could grow that I could, that would be beautiful. And, you know, you're in the ground with the dirt and it just felt very nurturing. So I learned over time, um, I'd met this one guy in Peru who we were talking about some of the experiences and he had talked about what he does when people tell different stories. He said, you, you have, you have to be on their time and it could be an hour, two years, which I mean, an hour, two hours. You can't just be in there. Question, answer, question, answer, because you got to do no harm. I mean, Mm -hmm. people are expressing things. You need to hold space and be witness to that. So we talked about how important it is to just be present, to listen and um, to let them only go where they're going to go. Otherwise, again, it could re-traumatize people. That all I was doing well, but I wasn't taking care of myself. So we talked about how the stories could go through me but not stick to me or not be blocked. And then that sounds strange, but it's like a visualization where the story could come through me, but I wasn't absorbing it and I wasn't blocking it because either one's not helpful. So after that, it was super helpful. And then the next step was after this book, I wanted to learn more about trauma, hurt, pain, grief, and how that impacts people. And moreover, how it can actually um, drive trauma, I mean, drive violence and conflict, or on the reverse, healing it, how can that maybe rewire the brain (laughs) to to build peace? Mm -hmm. 
So I've been studying for the last two years um, about neurobiology, about trauma, um, and it's a three-year program for somatic experiencing to better understand how it works and how to help heal trauma. Hmm. So that led me into you know a new area of study. Another layer to the onion. Another layer to the yeah. onion. Now yeah. I'm, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. You're listening to The Peace Frequency, a podcast series tapping into the stories of people across the globe who are making peace possible and finding ways to create a world free of violent conflict. I'm your host, Darren Cambridge, and joining me on today's show is my co-host and USIP colleague, Jody Nardi, and our guest is Colette Rausch, Associate Vice President for Global Practice and Innovation at the United States Institute of Peace and editor of the new book, Fighting Serious Crimes, Strategies and Tactics for Conflict-Affected States. So, Colette, in 2006, you led the United States Institute of Peace in pioneering what is now known as the Justice and Security Dialogues, or JSD, in Nepal. And since then, the JSD approach has been applied in 12 countries, and it's still active today, over 10 years later. In a nutshell, can you tell us what the JSD is and how you developed the approach? Sure. In a in a very basic way, Justice and Security Dialogue is a way for police and community members and other stakeholders, whether it be the judiciary or the prosecutors, political actors, to come together to focus on uh, justice and security challenges they're facing, whether it's at the local level or more at the national level, and to simply come together and discuss those and then create solutions for them. That's it in its most basic form. And was there a moment when you realized, you know, wow, this approach really has teeth and could really take off and be applied in other contexts outside of Nepal where you first um, started it? Uh, yeah, there was this moment in Nepal when it was it was one of the first discussions and we had civil society lined up on one end and then police on the other and there was still heightened emotions and anger um, on both sides from you know some of the past conflicts that had happened between the groups and it was at that moment when really I like to say we simply held that space and turned on the lights and created the environment but when things were getting really heated and you could feel it and I thought okay this is we made a big mistake. <laughs> this is not going well. Um, but at that moment, because of the people that we'd worked with in Nepal, there were two civil society activists who had worked with us to frame it and to organize it based upon experiences that they had had. And then um, a couple of the police officers who had also agreed to work with us because they had all worked together as a team in the beginning, The they kind of took it over. And then we just sat back. And I remember the police officer looking at me and saying, we're going to do it in Nepali. Trust us. It's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And then each group appointed somebody, a professor from one group and a civil society activist that the police trusted the professor because he had been their professor. And the civil society trusted this one female doctor to be the facilitators. And we just stepped out 
and then they just kind of went at it in a very constructive way, you know, getting the emotion out, talking about it, being honest with things. And it's at that moment I thought, okay, this could work in other places simply because as long as you have people in the field there who are willing to take that on, it can work. Right. It can't be us. That's amazing. So is that that experience. Um, so from my understanding, JSD has evolved pretty organically over the years in response to the context and different unique perspectives and needs of the different communities. Uh, from your perspective, though, how has the approach changed since its beginning? Um, it's changed in a couple ways. One is, unlike Nepal, where it was fairly organized around a national structure, so it could work from the national level down as well as the local community up, some places like in Iraq, that just wasn't possible. So in Iraq, it was really local issues, you know, issues like um, the community did not want the police post looking in people's backyards. The police mo- moved the police post, like very basic issues like that. So it moved from more kind of justice, security, you know, conflict issues like you'd see in Nepal to very local issues of just simply building trust around something basic like that. Um, and now my colleagues are taking it to a whole nother level where they're starting to pilot it in a number of countries in um, the Sahel and Maghreb um, and looking at it from a systems approach. But the key thing that's never changed is it's been driven by the people in that community. They choose what they're going to work on. They choose the problem and they drive it. And we're just simply providing the kind of infrastructure. So that's never changed. That's great. That's great. Thank you. Well, we're coming to the end of our time here. So we have two final questions for you. And I want to bring back your gardening experience, your effective use of gardening metaphors. And so, you know, over the last two hours, we've talked about issues surrounding serious crimes, um, what was happening leading up to when you wrote your first book in 2006. We talked about what changed in the years from 2006 to, um, to now when you're coming out with your new book, Fighting Serious Crimes. And so now I'd like us to focus on the future. And the way I'm going to ask this question, again, is bringing back in your gardening or love of gardening is for the next – looking forward to the next five or ten years – what are the seeds that you want to plant? You talked earlier about you seeing your job as kind of, you know, I'm planting a seed. Um, what what seeds do you want to plant in the next five to ten years? Okay, well, that's a hard one. Um, <laughs> I think there's so much change and upheaval in the world right now. Um, so for me, I want to continue to understand how to anticipate and prevent it. So I feel like the better that we can prevent for the eventualities that follow conflict, the more we can work towards a more positive outcome rather than anarchy or capture by those whose interests are um, in creating chaos or to exploit security vacuums or to promote their own political um, or economic gain. So my priority is to keep the issues at the front of policymakers and practitioners. um, And I want to fill the vacuum with knowledge and awareness rather than by fear, terror, and division that political and criminal elements use to divide us. Mm -hmm. And then you also describe yourself as a sunflower and the ability to kind of always shift and kind of turn towards the light. Yeah. So I'm thinking about folks listening who are legal um, you know, lawyers or want to go into this field or are currently in this field, and they may feel the need to turn towards the light because it's very difficult work. I mean, hearing you talk about different stories, obviously in serious crimes, difficult, hard work, often very dark work. So, I mean, what advice do you have for people who feel the need – they need more light? What, what 
what in this field for you constitutes turning towards the light? Where's the light in this field that people can look to? To me, people can create their own light. And even if it's very dark in the atmosphere, so they can create their own light and then look to others that with their light together can create a breakthrough the dark atmosphere. So for example, um, you know, it was very dark times when it, with Yemen and Libya, we'd worked with a number of civil society um, and police and others in both those countries. And now both countries are embroiled in war. So that was a very dark period of time. And a lot of people were saying, well, what can we do? And I looked at it as after a while, feeling very dark and with the sunflower trying to scan the horizon to find just the pinprick of light. It was something as simple as keeping in touch with my colleague in Yemen, even when he was had to go underground during the bombing, and just keeping that lifeline with him, or my friends in Libya. So something as small as just keeping in touch or sharing photos, that to me, maybe that's all we can do right now. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's that's how I would look at it. And then using another plant metaphor, while the sunlight in the, you know, you're looking for that, be like a tomato. And like the tomato plants, they're amazing to me. If you, you know, no matter what you do, you can't really get rid of them. You know, the little seeds are there and they'll grow up. If one falls off, you know, one branch falls off, um, the others will grow like weeds. So also kind of be like a tomato and, you know, don't worry if one limb gets lopped off, just let the others grow, so to speak, if mm-hmm. we're going to use that plant mm-hmm. metaphor. <laughs> Well, Carla, thank you so much for being with us today. Sure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And Jody, thank you for co-hosting for the very first time. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. You have been listening to The Peace Frequency, a podcast series tapping into the stories of people across the globe who are making peace possible and finding ways to create a world free of violent conflict. The Peace Frequency is produced by the Global Campus, USIP's online learning platform designed to teach and learn critical peace-building skills. You can learn more about the Global Campus at usipglobalcampus.org. Our theme music is composed by CDK. Our graphic designer is Manuel Leon, and I've been your host, Darren Cambridge. Be sure to check out the Peace Frequency website to access a recording of the show and other archived episodes of the podcast. The URL is usipglobalcampus.org forward slash peace dash frequency. Until then, keep learning, supporting, and building peace. Peace.